Hello, everyone, and welcome to Open Door Philanthropy. This is our giving advisor season, and this is our first episode. I am in my home in Maine on a Google Meet with Anna Marie Harling. Say hello, Anna Marie. Hi, lovely to be here. Uh, yes, yeah, lovely to have you here. Sorry, I couldn't. Sorry, you couldn't be here um, in Maine in person. It's a beautiful day here. The rest of the country is too hot, but my home, my home state, where I've recently returned. Uh, it's a nice, cool 73 degrees today. Um, it is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, you are the first guest for our Giving Advisor Seasons. Um, we, in the last season, we interviewed uh, philanthropists that were involved in collective giving, right? Giving with more than one person, right? Sometimes one of those people is a professional uh, or an organization of professionals, right? Increasingly, philanthropists are working with organizations, individuals, uh, nonprofits, NGOs, firms, ha whatever entity they are, right, to try to be more effective givers, increase their relevance, uh, whatever their giving strategy might be. Um, and you're here to talk about that. Uh, if you've listened, anybody at home, uh, and um, as I understand, Anne Marie, you've listened to a few episodes as well, you know that uh, I like to dive right into it with my guests, uh, which I'll do right now. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? So, Maybe you can tell from my accent, but I grew up actually in, in England, um, a little rural village. Um, and I guess it was a, I guess, pretty traditional, typical um, childhood. Um, if I think about the stories, I guess, that I was told by my mother and father, I, and I do think that stories do shape us. Um, so, you know, my, my father was actually from a very working class background in the north of England. Um, he actually left school at 15 to support his family. He had to go to he had to go to work. So that was something that he was always kind of emphasizing the importance of education. And so that became a very kind of strong, strong piece of my um, I guess my childhood was uh, how much education is a gift. Um, and my my mother was from, a, I guess, a much more privileged family. Originally, the family was from Scotland and moved to down to London, Australia, South Africa, and she, she was a biochemist by training, and so very much into research, but also adventure and cod fish um, sitting on trawlers and taking blood samples. So, you know, I think an ideal, an ideal of adventure and you can do anything that you put your mind to here um, really kind of, I guess, shaped how we kind of grew up, um, but yeah, it was certainly a rural village and kind what of, was, kind what of, was the name of the rural village? It's called Little Storton. Little Storton? Yes. <laughs> it was, um, so just, um, on very, quite close to Cambridge. So if any of your listeners know the UK, um, I have been pretty to flat land. You have been to Cambridge. It's a very nice part of the world. Um, flat farming, small, um, that's a, yeah, pretty, pretty good. Sounds very nice. Uh, at, and um, what is it that a little girl growing up in Little Storton does? Like, what did you, how did you spend so your this day? little girl used to like to climb trees and used to like to roam through the fields. Um, definitely was into activities and sports. So certainly did a lot of um, track and field, hockey. What kind of trees do you have? What trees? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we have a willow tree. Willows. Um, a willow. Um, we have sycamore trees, horse chestnut trees, mm -hmm. um, anything that you can basically kind of swing up, you know, make a tree house in. That was, I am uh, in the pine tree state. 
Oh. We have, we have mostly pine trees. I yeah. am currently surrounded by white white pine trees. Uh, okay. It's very good for wow. very good for lumber. Um, the um, so growing up there, do you remember uh, the first time that you gave someone something or that you did something intentionally generous? Yeah, I think it was. You know, a lot of the, I guess, the community organizing was very much driven by, by our local church and by our, mm. also by our school. Um, and so we had this, I guess, festival called the, the Harvest Festival. And within that, we, you know, every family would make these packages of food and tinned food and, and toys, and we would kind of decorate them. So you'd make a nice get a big shoebox and decorate it and put in the, the cans, the tins and everything, and then give it actually to the church. And then they would actually distribute it out to, to people and families who, you know, didn't have as, as, as much to eat. So I, I certainly remember doing that together with my, my mother and father. That was kind of one of the earliest memories. And then I think the, the earliest time I actually had to ask for money to do something was um, we used to organize kind of a, a sponsored swim. And so that was a time before any of these apps or, or anything like that, where we knocked door to door, you had kind of a clipboard and asked your neighbor, you know, I'm going to try and swim a thousand meters, you know, will you sponsor me to make that? And we would do that for, um, for uh, one, of the, one of the local charities. Um, so. Then you had to go. You had to go and do it, and then you had to go back afterwards and, and say, "I did it. <laughs> Please, can you give me the can we give give me the money?" So, mm-hmm. those were, I think, some of the early this, kind of engagement with charity. Was I this guess. the Church of England? Yes. Yeah. So, in uh, uh, as I recall, I'm Jewish, but I know a little bit about churches. I believe in America we call that Episcopal, the Episcopalian Church. I think it's more or less the same thing. We wouldn't call it the yeah, Church of England here, right? <laughs> No, exactly, exactly. Uh, and they like, do, you know, in my town, there are a lot of Episcopalians in my hometown, and they did something called Harvest Fest that's very similar to what you Okay, okay, described. it's interesting that it's... Similar. And I think there are many churches around the world doing that sort of thing. And I've, I, asked all, I asked all my guests some version of this question, and church is often involved um, in that answer. Right? And I think that's going to be very interesting as we go, as we start interviewing giving advisors. As I mentioned, it's one of the fastest-growing fields. Right, and we see that in parent. Like when a field is growing, right, it probably means another one shrinking. Right, mm. and I do believe that the church has played a larger role in how money was distributed in the past, and they still and they continue to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, beyond just Harvest Fest, did you attend? Did you were you in the pews on Sundays? I think they do I a lot of singing. I would say it was not a regular. It was much more of a link to an Easter or a Christmas sure. type type of thing. Sure. We have that here. There are, for the Jews, it's the high holiday. There's many, I think most Jews only go on the high holiday. Obviously, there's some Jews who go every week. Um, But the ones I know are generally high holiday Jews. Difficult tickets to get, actually. um, Small, like the the number of people going at those holidays increases so much. Um, Right? And I think that's, that makes sense. Those holidays were there for that reason. Right? Uh, and for some people going every week may bring the meaning, right? Uh, but like, incre- and um, one of the first giving advisors that I ever interviewed on the podcast was um, giving advisor to the Rockefellers. When they set up their foundation, they hired a nun. Mm. Former, uh, she actually wanted to, <laughs> she met a Jewish man and wanted to marry him. She made me edit this out of the podcast. 
<laughs> Actually, no. She told she like once she knew the camp the, the mics had stopped. She like she's like, did I tell you? Like, I want to tell you why I'm not a nun, right? Uh, she met a very nice Jewish man who decided she wanted to marry him. So she left, and she needed a job, right? Because they were covering all of her. She had never held a wallet. She joined the sisterhood at 16, and um, right now here she is, married like married at 65, needing a job, right? But nuns are are philanth- are grant officers. One of the things people don't understand about the Catholic Church is a very large funding outfit, and nuns do real administrative work. She was president of Manhattanville College, was doing fundraising, right, giving tuition support and all that sort of. She was very well qualified to come in and help the Rockefeller set up their foundation. And she, continue, and she continued to work with, so if you wanted to get access to your Rockefeller Trust, you had to, like, go through her philanthropy class and all that, right? So, so there's a lot, like, the religion and... And giving advising, right? Definitely hand in hand, right? Would you agree that the that that's part that that people are going to church less, turning to their religious leaders less, and particularly the super wealthy? I think I've seen stats on this are very are very unlikely to be regular churchgoers, right? And so when they need that kind of values based advice, right? That's why we have this new and burgeoning field. Mm. So I, you're not replacing the clergy, but you're, you're replacing a very specific aspect of what the clergy did. Yeah, and I think some of it is also in terms of like the, the scale of the giving and the, and the location in some sense. Because I think mm. if I think about, you know, churches are very much centered in the community. Yes, so yes. I think in terms of, you know, working with that community and supporting that community, I still think they play a very, very important role, which, mm. or whichever institution it is that, you know, within that particular community. I think when we're looking at, you know, solving the problem of hunger or that of education at scale across an entire country or region, and particularly one that may not be on your doorstep or one that you're really very familiar with, I think that's where you think about, well, what other expertise and what other... Um, groups should I be working with um, to be able to kind of understand what's needed in that, in that, con- that different context. Um, yes. Uh, terrific. The, uh, when you uh, uh, give to things personally, right, you're, uh, is it still Harvest Fest? Or, do you, or, or have you expanded where you give? Yeah, I think the, the personal giving is, is interesting. So I, I think it's it's often where people start, right? So I'm a very small <laughs> giver, but certainly around, sure. the, yeah, the community basis, you know, schooling, right? You know, you know, university where you go went to university, particularly for access for less privileged mm-hmm. um, kids to kind of get that, get that. You know, I was super fortunate. I went to Oxford University. I think it had a, you know, it opened my eyes to the world. Let's put it that way. And I think you know, being able to give that opportunity to others is really important. And then you know. Things that are close to my my heart, I think we didn't touch on. But I now live in I now live in Switzerland. Um, Switzerland, in some ways, is a, an amazing, very advanced um, country. On others, particularly when it comes to gender roles, roles of women, it still has a lot to <laughs> to go to. So um, I also support kind of more local kind of movement led work here about you know rights for women and the role of women in the in society. So. Very interesting. Um, okay. Uh, you mentioned that you went to Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how is Oxford funded? It's very old school, right? So they have an endowment, I assume. So Oxford is interesting because it's actually made up of a number of colleges, and each college has a different level of endowment. So there are oh. some very, very wealthy colleges. Um, so St. John's that. or Christchurch um, have very large endowments, basically because they own a lot of land and property in prime areas. And so that helps. Um, other colleges have much less. So the college I went to, Worcester, is didn't have was considered one of the poorer colleges and so didn't have such a level of endowment and so they actually did started a very big giving campaign to try and build that endowment up um because of the way that it could actually then support you know, reduced rent for um for students and also you know housing in in oxford is actually pretty big challenge and some colleges can offer housing in-house at reduced rates to their students the entire time you're there and others such as you know when I was there, you actually had to live out for most of your time. Hmm. Um, well, not the first year, but you could live out second year and definitely third year because they just didn't have the the accommodation. And so part of what you know Worcester actually worked on was building up that endowment, being able to kind of build additional student accommodation, and then you don't have to be actually out on the open market. So again, it helps in terms of equity of access and cost of living when you're actually there. Mm -hmm. And then obviously we pay fees. And so I think in the, U in the UK, it's actually a bit different because the government also supports universities um, with subsidies. So um, our, we, our government yeah. does support our universities. Okay. <laughs> the fee level seems completely crazy compared to the fee level. Uh, quite, quite a bit. I mean, we have a, the, Department of the US Department of Education gives a, a large amount in grants to, to higher education. Most of the like state schools also receive mm -hmm. state funding as well. Then we have... Private schools like Harvard. Harvard's endowment is larger than Oxford's. <laughs> even if you count all, large, even right? if you count all, of, I just have. I, it's so big. It's bigger than everything. It's actually like three times the size of Yale's. Um, it's the the Harvard endowment is, if you ask me, a problem. Um, they did sort of. They were like, obviously, we grow it forever, right? And like, no, we don't. It's growing, so that's good, right? But they've been around forever, so it's now. <laughs> the like grow forever growth thing right late in the stage starts to look a little weird and everything but that's uh, fairly interesting to me and like at, at harvard as well it does have different schools right uh and one of the largest gifts in american history uh was to start the paulson school for engineering at harvard which was previously unnamed a guy named john paulson gave 400 million dollars and you can just sort of see how that fundraising went right uh, we are the engineering school, and I believe this is true. We've won more Nobel Prizes than the Kennedy School for Government, but that's the more famous one. They're always in the paper and everything. We've, we can get, right, your 400 million. We call it the Paulson School, and then the engineering thing will be as, you know, and that's, and they're able to make that ask in a way that gets them 400 million. Most people can't do that kind of fundraising to somebody because that, that, that's a very advanced level of relevance. And I would say, like, you could do, there's a lot more you could have done with 400 million than just, like, name one of the already well-funded schools at Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, when a giver goes out and in relevance is what they're seeking and they're looking to put their name on something, right, they're going to look at, like, unnamed, well-known institutions. Uh, not, like, no-name like no places that nobody is interested in, that putting your name on that won't help. Um, so I, it's interesting to me to hear, so uh, I've heard these names, Christchurch College, I've heard Worcester College and stuff. How many colleges are there at Oxford? 
Oh. If you don't know off the top of your head, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's north of 20. Okay. So I can never remember the exact number. And you went to Worcester, which was be, which yes. looks like Worcester. Exactly. We do in Massachusetts. There's Worcester, Massachusetts. Yes. So I know I do know how to pronounce that. Christchurch is the fancy one, the, the most in the well, the best endowed so, of the schools. So actually, I think St John's and the Christchurch are pretty similar. Christchurch is well known because that's where, in their hall, the Harry Potter films were. Um, okay. Um, well, no, that's Hogwarts. I've seen those films. Yeah. <laughs> Not to correct you. You're, you're British, so I feel like you should know the name of it. I should know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but how did that, how did ones, how did some of the schools at Oxford end up with more than others? Is it just their alumni did better over, over time and were more generous going back? What? Yeah, Again, I understand I you don't represent Oxford, but this is, a yeah. I like, I like to talk to people about where they went to school and how the funding is because it's, our first experience with a well-funded institution, usually? It is normally there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, I think interestingly, the whole alumni fundraising isn't at the same level still as in, in the UK as in the, as in the US. Oh, we're and very I good at it, yes. You're very, very good at it. And I think... <laughs> this is the best fundraisers yeah. in the world by far, is alumni <laughs> fundraisers at higher education. Yeah, I think Oxford's made leaps and bounds. I think even you know since I've left, if I think about the number of calls I receive and you know multi-year gifts and all of this, I think it, it's it's getting there. Realistically, it's still fairly recent. I think that you know there have been big gifts made. I think um, the Sainsbury family made a very large gift to my college, Worcester. Um, they're behind the supermarket chain, so Worcester was always known for having great food because you know we have this great gift. Um, but I think a lot of the the old wealth, I guess, from the colleges still comes from their kind of property portfolios and other other investments. And then what they're yes. trying to do is is supplement that from from giving at many different many different levels. And and just recently, actually, and it's more recent thing I think from Oxford, I just received you know an ask from the economics department about you know could we give you know gifts to the economics department. And I think the um, Blavatnik School of Government was one of the largest gifts in the UK recently. A similar situation, I think, to your Paulson one, maybe not at the same level, but certainly in terms of um, of kind of you know naming rights and kind of really giving a, you know a, a significant amount to kind of develop a school and library there. So, mm -hmm. um, so uh, like when you were attending Oxford, did you? How much of that did you understand? Um, I would say five percent. Like we knew, you, you kind of knew that different colleges were wealthier than other colleges, mm -hmm. and because it's I, actually, yeah. But that's about it. But I really do remember kind of the way I was that in, the money works. <laughs> so I went. To, I went to Dickinson College, which is also a fairly well endowed institution here in the U.S. Yeah. And it was founded in 1776, so they've had a very long time um, to right to, to build up their endowment. While I was there, they were constantly reminding us students that our tuition was actually higher than what we were paying, right? Like the total cost, like they were, we would get, I remember we get these pamphlets in our mailboxes, right? They would just be like, your tuition, which was Dickinson tuition, some of the highest in the country, right? Right, is this much. The actual cost for you to go here is this much, right? And that's coming from donors, right? And that was like to prepare us for after we graduated that we would need to be to become donors as well. If you act, their tax returns are public, if you actually go in there and do the math on like how much money they have and how they're spending it, 
That is, it's just not correct. They have a endowment of many billions of dollars. Uh, there is, there's many scholarships, outside scholarship funds available. They don't need to be charging tuition at all. Uh, they actually raised tuition during the pandemic, even though students were <laughs> taking Zoom for not that. using the wow. campus. Um, right? They, well, they claimed that it was because they needed to train their, it was going to cost money to train the faculty to teach over Zoom, right? Mm. And my parents are professors with PhDs, and I was like, do you need to be trained to teach over? They're like, no, of course not. <laughs> I don't know who would be qualified to <laughs> come in and, uh, but right. The, uh, I've, I've talked to a few college presidents, uh, and generally it's, it's a real estate business more than it's a school for many of them, especially for, with private institutions, right? How much land they have, the use of that land, uh, revenue sources. Um, the, uh, many of these places are just make a lot of their money <laughs> having conferences during the summer when students aren't there. Uh, right, and that's just that's a real estate business. <laughs> the uh, right, and I think you've got a lot of students there being told like, oh, right, scholarships, tuitions, donations, and everything. Behind the scenes, it's much more complicated and interesting, particularly with these institutions that have been around forever. Right, and all most of our college-educated folks, this is where the first place they learn anything about philanthropy. Right, scholarship is something you apply for; it comes from a pile of money. It pays for this. Scholarships are much different than grants, though, right? You get one scholarship and then you go to school, right? You get one grant and you immediately start thinking about getting the second grant from that organization, right? It's more of an ongoing thing. Lots, as a result, lots of new nonprofits think that they might, they'll get one grant and then they'll do their work, just like when they got that scholarship to go to school. Um, and many of them, like you, will tell me, right, didn't really, now, I totally understand, it sounds like you have a pretty good understanding of your alma mater and how things are going and their funding and all that. But while we're students there, it's not being taught to us and we often graduate without knowing it. I love telling, I, I like asking my fellow Dickinson alums, if they can guess how much money Dickinson has. None of them ever guess in the billions, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's billions in the bank on top of the enormous amount of land that they own, which would be, which they don't have to pay taxes on. I assume Oxford is also tax exempt on their property. Is that how it works over there? Oof, now you're getting into a level of detail I'm not sure about, but I'm pretty sure my college didn't have billions. I think they would be very happy to have billions. But um... yeah, it's a, that's a lot. It's a very large endowment. <laughs> most of the most of them with that much are in the US. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Um, but around the tax exempt status, I think around I know on that there's more I know about kind of high schools and private high schools that can have charitable status. Mm. Um, around that um, for their charitable purposes. I think in the, the university says, oh, I, I wouldn't be able to. Something sounds familiar, but it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's, 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 it's an issue here in small town. If a small town has a hospital and a college and both of them own a lot of land, right? That can very much increase the mill rate for the like individuals who live there, right? So their property tax rates have to account for the entire area, mm. right? But like sometimes half of the area is taken up by colleges and hospitals and, and other untaxed properties. Right, and then that falls on the benefit of having that nonprofit there does make up for it, but at tax time, very easy to be like my taxes are high. This huge fancy <laughs> shining <laughs> city on the hill with billions of dollars is not paying. Ta that's a difficult pill for lots of folks to swallow, mm. uh, which is maybe why they don't necessarily want to tell all their students about how much money they have, like while they're there. So, did you enjoy going to Oxford? 
I did. It was uh, it's too short. It was three years, uh, but it was really a. What did you yeah, study? As then? I said, it was an eye opener. I studied it's a degree called PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics. I have actually heard this. I've heard that. So that's that's personal protective equipment. <laughs> Something about that. It's uh, also gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes, given the number of politicians in the UK that have studied there and studied that. Um, so is that what you would call like? Would we call that political science here? Yeah, political science and economics. We don't have kind of majors and minors, but this is probably the closest because you kind of mix and match between the three subjects. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, very interesting. Um, so outside of Oxford and outside of church, since we talked about that a little bit, what, what did you learn from? Where did you learn the most? So I think for me from a young age, it was definitely through sport. So, sport. Um, so track and field, like a, when, where I grew up, I... I uh, was part of Bedford and County Athletics Club. It's a local athletics club, track and field. So Which events did down. you? I did the 100-meter hurdles and high jump. Uh, very good. I was a triple jumper. I ran the two. Ah, nice. You didn't uh, have knee problems. My knees aren't great, though. No. <laughs> All my friends that did triple jump have knee, knee troubles, so that's why I asked. I wasn't particularly good at it. So my, my main sport was golf. I'm, I'm, Continue to be okay at golf. I ran track to keep my like legs strong, and the, the yeah. someone told me that plyometrics was good for hitting the ball farther, and so I started doing. It was neat learning the rhythm and all that and everything. It's hop, skip, yeah. and the jump. Right. Exactly. I remember being like, "This is really a this is an event that you all do. You hop, <laughs> skip, and jump as you went the farthest." Well, I also got I got, I got to be the starter for it at the Special Olympics, which was fun. Oh, nice. Um, the track feels very good for uh, right. Um, even though I was not particularly good at it, I, I was able to be on the team and like, you know, uh, lots of good stuff that I, I learned a lot uh, from Coach Wilson. If he listens to the podcast, I'm honored. Um, the, um, do you still run? Do you still do the hurdles? 100, 110 hurdles. <laughs> the hurdles, yeah. 100 hurdles, yeah. Oof, yeah. It's, um, now, the hurdles have been retired, but I, I still love to, to run. So now I've moved more into like swim, bike, run. So I like Very to good. do a bit of triathlon. Yeah. Uh, okay. Safe. So uh, you've, we're moving along in your life here. You've gone to school. <laughs> you have engaged in athletics, uh, gone to right, Easter services a few times. Uh, at, as you're growing up, did you always know that you wanted to work in the in philanthropy? I think I didn't even realize the word philanthropy existed. Sure. So what did you what did you want to be when you were a kid? So when I was a kid, I was quite. I, I thought being a stunt woman would be kind of cool. You know, stunt I, woman. Yeah, I like to kind of swing from trees and do those type of crazy things. So that was kind of the early early life of like, oh, can I just do this? Did you um, ever do it? Did you ever do any stunt? <laughs> I think I made up some with my brother and we tried to kind of like roll around and like pretend we were acting cool. But um, yeah, that was about, that was kind of one kind of, you know, if anybody ever asked me, what would you be? I'm going to do stunts. Um, that, you know, I think when it got to, you know, being a teenager and having to think like, what should I do? Um, you know, as you probably could hear, like it was pretty kind of standard I guess, middle class upbringing. And so in, in kind of my life, it was like, are you going to be a lawyer or a doctor or maybe work in a bank or do something in finance? And so that was kind of what I saw when I was younger as kind of career options for somebody that was good in school and, you know, would be a you know, 
would be kind of a way forward. And so um, from then, I, I kind of like maths, like economics, so settled on, on finance. Um, you call it maths. Maths, math, math, sorry. One of the I noticed recently, so you call it, in, is we, here in the U.S., we call it sports and yeah. math. And you call it sport, sport. and math. <laughs> it seems intentional. <laughs> Maybe we did it intentionally. I, it's just very confusing for anyone like trying to cross the sorry, any like um, accountants for athletes that are trying to work in both countries are like it's gonna have they're gonna be going back and forth all the time, right? Yeah, we guys to kind of do the you know correct the uh, correct as far as maths is correct because the full is mathematics. Mathematics. Yeah. It's not mathematic. So. Maths. I think that's usually your stuff is just like extra unnecessary letters, but sometimes you have a problem with the U. <laughs> no, sometimes sometimes that U is is correct for the. I don't want to get too into it, but like sometimes it is pronounced. It's it, it should be there, and other times not. Like so, for like favor. It's not or. It's 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 a, it's more like long and subtle. Um, neighbor as well, right? Bor, neighbor. It's a it's a. Neighbor. It's it's slightly different, uh, and we have some vowel sounds. You don't ah. Uh, uh. <laughs> you don't you do you guys. I'm not gonna even try that one. <laughs> Almost it's like the only vowel. It's like our only one. Right? I'm Dave Moss, right? <laughs> um, all right. So uh, what did you, what was your uh, when you graduate with your PPE degree from Oxford? Right. I'm sure people wanted to hire you. What did you do? What was your what did, what did you start doing? So, so yeah, one, one of the things that we, we, we spoke a little bit about how was school funded and how was my school, well, you know, part of how I also funded being at school was by doing internships when I was there. And so when um, actually at, at Oxford, as you say, it's actually pretty, pretty fun because during your time there, you actually get a little bit recruited and um, wooed by a number of different firms who come sure. and give you nice dinners, right? And as when you're a student and you don't have many funds and my parents were always very clear it's like we fund your education but everything else you need to fund yourself so when there's free food you mm -hmm. tend to show up um and so actually from that got kind of interested in the whole concept of investment banking and i thought oh this is this interesting it's economy it's finance um so i actually did a couple of internships um at a bank called credit suisse um credit suisse London. i've heard of that credit suisse yes been in the news maybe for some of the wrong reasons recently. Um, and uh, In general, Swiss, so bank, Swiss banking, very popular stuff. Swiss banking. Everyone, great <laughs> reputation. <Yes. laughs> Every, I can't, I'm, I've never met anyone who has a negative opinion of that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, after a couple of internships um, there, which is, I think, learned a little bit more, they actually offered me a, offered me a job. Um, I was adamant that I wanted to kind of take a year after university. I really wanted to go and learn French. And so actually oui, deferred oui. joining a bank. Yeah. Went and spent time in Grenoble to practice my French, do a little bit more study around political science, and then came back and started working in London. At Credit Suisse. At Credit Suisse, yeah. And what did you what did you do like when you first start working there, what do you do what is it that you do? What's your day to day? What yeah, so, so the first thing they did, which was quite fun, was that they sent us all to New York to actually be trained on what the hell we were supposed to be doing. Because I have to say, when you study at university, you don't really study exactly what 
a job is in in a bank um and so covered a lot of things from equity trading to equity sales to bonds to this is swiss all, all swiss banker things. and new york banker these are two of the most like popular Popular beloved beloved professions. Tell me, I'm 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 like a really popular person right now. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I can't imagine there. what complaint anyone would possibly have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then from there, I actually got kind of allocated. So you're kind of in this graduate pool, right? And then you get allocated to a team. And I was in a team which was you're gonna laugh at this. Was making all of those funky derivative products that uh, had something to do with what happened uh, around I see. 2008. Yes, <laughs> working with a number so of So you were funds. bundling bad mortgages and selling them to bad actors. So bad hedge funds. But you were young and didn't know. That you were bought, you assumed that the people above you knew what they were doing and were competent, <laughs> values-based people. Did you not assume well, that? <laughs> no, absolutely, and also just assume that, that you know this is. Interesting. There were many instances. There were many things yeah. early in my career that I did that I now realize were like this is. I can't believe we were doing that, right? But I was. I was. Just, you have a job. Like you can't blame the lowest folks on the totem pole at these banks. You didn't decide to bundle the bed. And in fact, like I needed. <laughs> I needed a film with Steve Carell, like before I fully understood what happened there. Like the guys, my guy at Morgan Stanley tried to explain it to me and I have no idea. I had no idea, right? But like I had to watch several documentaries before I like actually like figured out what the, like the extent to which what they were doing was wrong. And that they knew, like should have known while they were doing it. You, I, and one of the things that's interesting about, right? A lot of us have that first experience with institutions at a place like Oxford or Dickinson College. I grew up in Waterloo, Maine, which is where Colby College is. And my parents were professors there. Colby is an extremely well-run place where everyone's capable and competent. It gave me a very unrealistic set of expectations for the world, right? Um, you've got, you know, there's just a lot of people out there that don't know what they're doing. And I think if you go into the world assuming everybody does, you're gonna, it's gonna eventually, you're gonna come to the realization that they did not. And my generation has had to, has had that realization forced upon us several times. Right. So you were, I mean, you go off and you work at these well-known banks. It should be, banking is fundamentally not amoral. It is like some of these decisions that got made around piles of money, right? Which is uh, what we're talking about, right? The, uh, some of those things that happened in the banking sector, right? Uh, they got bailed out, uh, some time passed, they were able to do some clever marketing campaigns, and they are now doing those things again. <laughs> right? Uh, we need to make sure, like, it's and there's generally no reason to, like, panic the public. Uh, right? And so we'll just sort of wait for it to happen again. I think eventually, like, folks in my generation are going to, like, start getting used to a recession every 15 years. And uh, hopefully, folks start realizing that, like, it's not just a constant growth mindset we need to be more thoughtful and imaginative and perhaps qualitative in how we think about these things uh growing the pile of money forever is not necessarily a great strategy when it comes to philanthropy that is like uh, uh, there's a lot of overlap between the credit suisses of the world i believe you also worked at ubs I did. So eventually, in a very different, a different, very different world, but yes. So you were at Credit Suisse for a while, and eventually, you're like, you applied for another job at different bank. Said, 
more or less what happened? <laughs> Actually, I didn't. When I left Credit Suisse, I never actually imagined going back and working in a bank. <laughs> like I, I was on a, I was on this path of, you know, there were there were a few things that happened um, in my personal life. My father passed away. My mother was very sick, um, and I, I was just having this realization of like, what am I actually doing? You know, you talk about piles of money. It's like, who are we creating these piles of money for, right? You know. In the end, are we creating it for the bank? Are we creating it for the very wealthy? But what's, you know, there is, there was a lot of money being made there. And there was just this question I, I kept coming back to. It's like, what, how come there is so much money happening here? And then, you know, we talk about like volunteering and charity, but there's so little over here. Like there's, there's some kind of really big disconnect happening here. And so then it was a question of, well, what's my role in, in that? And what, you know, when you're faced with, uh, you know, a death of somebody where you think it's just too young for somebody to, to die. My, my father passed away. He had, he was 56, right? You know, he had cancer, unfortunately, in, in the prime, you know, effectively in the prime of his life, you know, not even thinking about kind of retirement at that stage. Well, maybe in 10 years time, you think, well, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life working, like I want to do it in a way that actually has some relevance and is not helping create, you know, contributing to a problem that I'm starting to see. Um, uh-huh. And so at that, you know, this was around about 06, 07, and you start looking and saying, like, what can a, somebody that knows something about business and finance, what can you actually do, right? You know, we talk about what do you so do sorry, when you're you in the bank. said 06, 07? Yeah. <laughs> is, there any, is there a particular event that happened in the banking world around that time that caused this? That's when, the, that's that's when the crash was, if I remember. So well, that was more 08 when Bear Stearns went down. Was so it? I, I was already, yeah, yeah. So I was kind of already thinking a little bit before. That was 08, are you sure? Yeah, 08. I guess you worked yeah. in banks. I'm just trying, I, because so, uh, funny story, we were, I was fundraising from Lehman Brothers okay. at the time. Yeah. Like, we, we were, we had the proposal in and everything, and like, we were waiting, we were going to, they were going to tell us yes, I think, for like a very large multi-year, like million dollar thing. Uh, and then I remember I, my job was to like read the news. I got into the office at 6 a.m. every day and read all, I read Wall Street Journal and everything, right? To like scan for stories about our, this was before, like, I guess you could have, I could have been Googling them, but it was still pretty early days for that sort of thing. We had, phys, I remember I read the physical paper there. And I read, I read, it was just article after article about Lehman Brothers. <laughs> I went in one, that one, and I, I, I would, would have sworn it was 07, but I guess um, I could be, right. Anyway. Um, yeah. The, so, so sorry to interrupt there. Uh, but anyway, no, this no, was this was a tumultuous, no, historically tumultuous many, many historically kind of noteworthy kind of, time in banking history. Yes, yeah, and um, if, and but at the same time, you know, if you've been working on Excel's and doing mm-hmm. random things, you know, again, you're not really so I think equipped. You know, when I started looking like what could somebody with my skill set do, you know, I I had I was like, there's not. How, how do I kind of get the skills that could be actually helpful for in other areas of, of, of the world in, in, in some sense? And so around that time, I, I remember actually reading what some of these articles around like the concept of like impact investing. And I was like, oh, you know, this is when you know, I think Rockefeller reduced, you know, produced some kind of paper. I remember kind of reading this and thinking, oh, there's, there's this world where you can actually combine business and finance with actual good. I was like, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. And then you start looking for like, what are the jobs in those areas? And you think, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I need to go back to school <laughs> right before I can actually. It's very, you mentioned you know, impact. Yeah, yeah. Interesting to hear. So impact investing for a while, 
I would hear about it constantly. I didn't have any conversations where people didn't bring yeah. it up. And I remember there were even some like philanthropists who were like, oh, philanthropy is ancient, it's antique. You could put that aside and now we only do impact investing. Personally, uh, impact investing isn't real. It's, it's identical to investing. You just, you just go out of your way to do extra like uh, spin about those investments, right? And you produce some extra reports and everything. But you have a bottom line just like other investors. And if you're not making money, you'll stop making those investments. And your point, the point of it is to make more money, right? It, regular investing also made change and advanced the world and brought people out of poverty and cured disease. And it did all of the, it was doing all of the things that impact investing is like, here's what we do that's different, right? Um, it philanthropy is to me, that's freed money. That's when you free money from the capitalist system and it allows you to do things that are not transactional, that aren't investment-based, that don't operate off of return to the original investors, right? That aren't built off of the principle of like the fund will grow forever. Um, there is a like very old science fiction novel called Fund War. Uh, it's very obscure. It should be, <laughs> it should be something everyone has to read. But it's like, in the distant future, there's only three funds left. All of the money has gone into these three funds, right? And actually, one of them is just set up, is a legal fund to protect the other one, right? So its only job is to, like, pay for lawyers to make it so you can't touch this fund. And, like, what's, what's that's, your, like, you're chuckling and everything. We're, if we don't do anything, that's what will happen. <laughs> that is what we are currently doing with no one trying to stop it. Uh, so the reason the reason I'm laughing is because you know your your point about impact investing is actually investing in philanthropy. You know that was effectively a journey that, that I, I then went on, right? So you know because you always need an angle into like how am I making from over here, which is very much pure finance, to over in the other side where, where we can actually create you know significant change. And so my way into that was to say, well, here's something kind of that bridges in theory between the between the two. And so that was kind of my kind of my lens to say well maybe there's something that I can offer to kind of make those steps and I think if you if you look at what I've done since it's getting it's kind of getting closer and closer to that realization right you know that actually if you really want to create change you know is it one foundation no is it many foundations in a, in a network is it looking at the full spectrum of capital mm -hmm. and now you know where I am now which is like how can we be, we be you know make philanthropic giving as efficient, as effective, and as impactful as possible, right? So it's it's like this whole pendulum, and I think that the journey is still going, ongoing. But uh, the very it first, started back then, and it's, yeah. <laughs> it's going in the right direction, I think. The very first giving advisor I ever spoke to, I had many opportunities to speak to him, a man named Dr. Jeffrey Solomon. He wrote a book called The Art of Giving, uh, and he ran the um, Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies, ACVP in the U.S. The Bronfman's... From the, our, the money comes from Warner Brothers and Seagram's. Uh, it's a considerable amount of money. ACBP is kind of noteworthy as a foundation because they, they successfully spent now a very large endowment. I forget how much. I think it might have been in the billions, and they, um, it, it's kaput. And, uh, Dr. Solomon oversaw all of that, uh, and there was lots of interesting work that went in there and all of that, uh, and they, including impact investing, right? And some, and, and some other things. And I remember when he, one of the first things he ever said to me, he was very clear about how to do philanthropy. He had the one model, right? And it's the, it's the traditional foundation model, set up a private foundation in the US, which allows you to invest with a lot of tax advantage, right? You, you have to give, you're gonna give away 5%. He was very clear that you never give away more than 
5% is the minimum. It is also the average here in the US. And so he, like, not everybody generally agrees with him, <laughs> right? And many places like UBS and Morgan Stanley and other places are seeking actively to manage these funds, right? And so they can get, they manage the money and they get to make fees off of ma managing the money. Larger the pile is, the more fees they make, right? They will have to help you with, in order to manage the foundation pile, they need, they'll need to help you with that 5%, right? So that's why most of these banks, and, and, and many other, there's another reason, um, the wealth transfer is something that has been, they've been talking to me. <laughs> uh, so I am a millennial and allegedly I'm like the oldest millennial more or less. Like I was literally born on the, I was born on like the day, like the day. I'd say I identify, I think with folks a little older than me, a little bit more. I didn't have a cell phone in high school or in college. Actually, I was a senior in college when I got my first cell phone, right? Which doesn't scream millennial to me. Um, but, right, my, the folks a little younger than me, my generation, and some of the folks a little older than me, allegedly are going to inherit, like, the lar it's going to be the largest transfer of wealth between generations ever. One of the things I've noticed is it's not actually happening. <laughs> the, even if parents die, the money goes into a trust with their name on it. There's a really interesting book by a BU professor called the, like, I think it's called The Growing Power of the Dead, right? There are a lot of wealthy people who have died and their money continues and there's rules about how that money can be used. And that person's dead. And these are large piles of money and it's an increasingly large portion of the entire pot, right? Personally, I don't think dead people should be able to have a say in how things work, right? They, they get to have heirs and it doesn't have to be their children. They, can, they choose where the money goes, right? And hopefully they choose someone who, have, who has values that are similar to theirs and, and will be able to act accordingly in the future. It's a great Thomas Jefferson quote, right? Um, God, I'm not going to remember this. I used to do, I used to be able to get all my TJ quotes off the top of my head, but he did not want to, it was like something about how he didn't want to um, basically imprison future generations to the wants and needs of previous generations. Because you can't actually, they're dead, you can't argue with them. You can't go back and be like, well, actually, right? Can't present new information, right? This is something we're going over in the US here. Right, um, right. To me, I, the values of the founders are very clear. The the specific things they said are no longer relevant. The uh, and that's a, that's a, that, that 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 very much applies to everything else. Um, and right, that model of grow the fund, give away only five percent every year, while watching the total amount of fund will allow you to support things forever past your death date. Right. Eventually, Bronfman decides he wants to do like, he wants to actually like give it all out, right? Which is just for, just to be clear, he didn't give away all of his money, just the money at, that was being held there at, he's still alive and a wealthy man, right? Uh, but there, there are some examples, the, the, the guy from, I forget his name, but he was Atlantic Philanthropies, spent down a very large amount. Yeah. Uh, Carnegie is probably the biggest example. He, died, he actually gave away his, most of his personal wealth uh, as well, not just like all the foundation's money. That foundation still exists. Like, he didn't spend down the foundation, he spent down his personal wealth, which is something that like, no one would do today. Your banker at UBS would like fire you as a client if you started behaving that way, right? Um, so because of this wealth transfer, right, they need to woo 
next generation clients. They're not necessarily clients yet. They're like the beneficiaries of the trust, right? They have no say in how any of this works, right? But someday they might have say, right? And how do we get those, these, young, these younger folks interested in banking, right? Impact investing, philanthropy, right? Those sorts of things are very interesting to them. The, um, uh, other trendy things, um, I'm trying to think, what was, micro lending for a little while, uh, just in general social impact now, philanthropy, conferences, meeting other folks. Actually lots of times it's just sort of like giving wealthy young folks the opportunity to meet other wealthy young folks for like, you know, dating and social type stuff. Banks are increasing because it's a very long, the, the, watching this $50 trillion go from their current clients to future clients or future trusts and whatever is, is, the, is the main focus for the ultra high net worth um, strategists at all of these places. It's not necessarily philanthropy, right? We have to do that because that's, 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 it's not like we, if they didn't wake up and say, we're gonna do philanthropy and build a whole strategy around it. They woke up and said, we're gonna, we're gonna manage money and build a whole strategy around that that includes philanthropy. There's lots of really great professionals working in these places, right? If you go, and particularly UBS, I think does some pretty good philanthropic advising work, right? Because they, they hired like all the good folks. But it's, I think it is important to understand like what's the motivation and everything of this place. What's been interesting for me is to watch nonprofit firms set up in the last, like, so since I heard that story about you can only, like, this is how you do it. You start a foundation, you put your money into the foundation, right? People can look up your tax return and see your giving and all that. Like the, the way it worked when I was trained in fundraising and philanthropy 20 years ago, right? All kinds of new models and entities since. More than I could possibly probably list off, right? There's donor advised funds, increasing, very few people are starting new foundations now. Um, it doesn't seem, it seems, I think, old fashioned to them. I actually think it's still a very good vehicle for most, if you're an American with a considerable amount of extra wealth, foundation, and you want to involve your family, I think it's, it's, that's probably the best way to do it. But you can go, definitely go and start a donor advised fund somewhere, right? Or all kinds of other vehicles. Um, it's pretty, like, pretty tempting when someone tells you, like, well, you could be making change and make money. Uh, there was, there was a, I think you can do that. <laughs> but, like, you're going to make more change if you, if, like, if you take a little bit more philanthropic approach forward. I used to go to SOCAP, the Social Capital Market Conference, all the time. That's the first place I encountered that mission meets money mindset, right? Which was, it's just a very nice thing to believe for a very long time. Uh, but I do think there is a real role in the future for actual philanthropy. It is a considerable portion of the world's GDP now. Um, in, in America, it's about one-fifth of, of our entire economy is, is philanthropy dollars, right? And this is money that, and I will be very clear about what philanthropy is, right? This is when you have extra wealth and you give it to an organization with the expectation that they will pursue social change of some sort or social amelioration, not necessarily change, right? So bringing people out of poverty, helping the homeless, those sorts of things, um, right? Um, and so uh, we, have start, we, are, we have done this season on giving advisors. We generally do first half 
for more of the show, talking about the background of our guests, people know who we're talking to and everything before we really get into the philanthropy, right? This, we're, and we're focused on giving advisors, which is probably not, you don't call yourself a giving advisor. You probably don't go around someone. We might, I, I think sometimes when I say that phrase, I imagine someone in a like dark cloak whispering in the ear of the funder, right? Like he's sitting on a throne, right? And there's just like a little man behind him, like whispering in his ear, right? Where to give and everything. And perhaps for some philanthropists it's like that, but usually it's a much more uh, process oriented thing. And it often does have some, it is often somewhat coupled with, coupled with wealth management. Uh, that is fundamentally wealth that we're working on here. Uh, so so uh, tell me about what you do currently. Um, you, you work with donors to help them with their, in, in a way that helps them with the philanthropy. I believe it's called co-impact. Exactly, yeah. So co-impact, basically, we're, you know, pulling the funding from uh, a number of different donors, right, with the idea that by coming together, uh, we can actually support organizations with, like, longer-term, more flexible and larger funding than what they would normally do um, um, by themselves, individually. Um, we particularly, we specifically focus on um, the global south, and really the core is, and it gets to the heart of like, where can philanthropy really create change that's sustainable and at scale, is to say, well, if we're looking at, let's say, an education system in a country like Zambia, you know, how can that education system deliver primary school um, outcomes, so literacy outcomes or math outcomes? Math or maths, whichever one you may want to say. Um, uh, um, maths outcomes. outcomes. Maths tough. outcomes. <laughs> um, you know, more effectively, like how how can philanthropy kind of help you know and aid that to happen? And so, with CoImpact, what we do is support those organisations. So, for example, we support teaching at the right level in Africa. And their model is not to necessarily deliver all of these programs themselves, is to really support the government and the government programs and government schools to put the best practice into place. But to do that over, you know, that takes a number of years, right? So we will fund and grant for about five years, sometimes six years. And the idea being after that, our funding could end. Um, but actually the, the, you know, the actual initiative and the process is so embedded within that education system that in some sense, the philanthropic capital isn't needed anymore. And so we, we support these um, donors to be able to kind of come into something like Co-Impact and create that change at that level of scale in a way that perhaps just funding one organization individually wouldn't be so 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 feasible, so possible. Um, I see. So um, you said something in there that I found interesting and have a, uh, all of it was interesting, uh, but um, organizations that, uh, yeah, I forget exactly what you said, but um, you're trying to help them raise more money than they would be able to on their own, right? Some, some version of that. Exactly, so to receive, receive a larger grant than, so we, we're a grant maker, so we, we provide them with a grant of a lot, oftentimes the largest grant they would have ever received. And we can do that because we're actually working with a number of different donors in a collaborative, and so we can give longer term, more flexible funding over. Uh, so no, so I am the founder of Unfunded List. I no one reads more unfunded grant proposals a year than I do. I'm very con very confident <laughs> on that fact. And I've, and I've asked, I talked every time I ask, every time I talk to a program officer, I ask, you know, how many proposals do you consider in a year, right? And I I 
destroy everyone. Hundreds and I read hundreds and hundreds of them from all over the world, uh, right? Uh, and I have my in general, all of them would like more money. Would like a, would like to get the largest grant they've ever got. Yeah. I've, I don't I haven't met any NGOs that are like, oh no, it's all we're all good. But sometimes if they're, if they're run by a found, like, so there's actually a Math for America, Math for America. It's founded by Jim Simons, who's like one of the richest people in the universe. He, you, he's from hedge funds, so you may know what I'm talking about. Do you know that name, Jim Simons? Jim Simons, no. I would look it up, it's very interesting stuff that he does. Yeah. Uh, but they, I actually, it was like the only time, I, I was on a phone call one time with Math for America, and they were like, oh no, we have, we have plenty. They said something like, we have plenty of money. Like, we won't, like, money's not a problem or whatever. That's, like, literally the only time I ever heard anyone say anything like that to me in this entire sector, right? And it's because they have a living billionaire founder, right? And I imagine there's, like, people at Mackenzie Scott's giving operation to say the same things, right? <laughs> so I guess these folks exist. But, like, the people I talk to, like, sometimes they've never received a grant. They're trying to get more grants. Their work, they would be helping people if someone gave them a grant, right? Yeah. Um, and so this, I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't write this question down, but I would like to ask it. Why aren't they getting larger grants? Like you're coming, you're going to come in and maybe identify and give them a larger grant. But that's you're only going to be able to do that with a small number of them. Like, why are these folks, whether they're in Zambia or anywhere else, there's bet there's people not getting their grants all over the country, all over the, all over the planet. Trust me, I've spoken to, to fundraisers in over 80 countries. Uh, why aren't they getting grants in general? So I think some of it, like you, you've hit the nail on the head, right? If you look at philanthropic giving. And you look at, you know, other than some of the large guys, it's relatively small. It's generally less than a million dollars. It's a one-year, very project-focused grant, and it's super restrictive, right? It's really kind of controlled. And so I think if we say, like, why are, you know, why are organizations not getting more grants? It's It comes down to this power control dynamic of funding and funders, mm. you know, organizations and funders. And I think... One of the key things in going back to like role of advisors is like, how do you kind of support that that trust? You, you can help build that trust to say, actually you need, you know, give a little bit more, give longer term, you know, allow the organization the flexibility to, to pivot. And it's not necessarily about funding one very specific project. It's about really funding an entire uh, initiative. And, you know, if we get to the core of like, why, why could that be? I think there's, there's a question as to, you know, what is the what is the philanthropist or the donor? What what are they hoping for? Is it, you know, obviously impact is, is important, but sometimes it's it's also something something more in there. Like, how do they find themselves within the giving? Like, what is what is it that they're contributing to? How can they define that this is because of my gift? Um, so I think this question of trust, this question of um, contribution, this question of like my role within all of this, I think are all really kind of interesting aspects also in the in the human psyche and why I think mm. the role of that advisor within that can be so interesting because it can really helpfully, you know, support better better giving and better practices of giving on one side, which then leads to greater impact for the organizations on the on the ground. Um, we, we really want to kind of push the, you know, keep banging that drum to say like give more flexibly, give lo longer term, give larger amounts. As you you know you said there's so much wealth and so much money being accumulated. You know, mm -hmm. I think sometimes, sometimes a, a donor doesn't necessarily even know like their number, right? If you want to give all your money away, do you know how much you need to give every single year to actually do that based on whether, you know, mm -hmm. you can do various scenarios. And I think having, you know, having people within the, 
you know their own communities to kind of help them work that through is is really important. And those that are really with that aligned interest of really trying to create that impact at scale and uh, yes, the um, so this is um, so philanthropy uh, compared to other human endeavors is a relatively young one. Organized givers only about 120 years. We had charity, alms, uh, donations of some kind, right? But up until like 1900, we didn't really have individuals with excess wealth anywhere on the planet, really. This is a result of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we now have an unprecedented number of people who have extreme amounts of wealth. There are thousands of billionaires. Um, the richest people in, out, throughout human history, right, usually had to like maintain a standing army to defend their wealth. Right, or like do, they had other like Bill Gates does not have to do that, <laughs> right? Um, he could, I mean, he could. He doesn't. He does not have a standing army, to my knowledge. Um, right. It, it, historically, someone with that much money would—that's what they first thing they would have done, right? So we now have we have we have modern nation states now where people can build these funds and think much more interestingly about what they're doing, right? And that's like sort of sort of started with Carnegie. Um, especially the like Western model of philanthropy, which is like LOIs, RFPs, program officers, grant proposals, right? Multi-year grants, restrict like all of these things that we are talking about today, right? This is a young field. It's younger than psychiatry, right? It's younger than nutrition. It's younger than a lot of new things that are still advancing, right? So, and I do think that like when philanthropy, we, we tend to like overly criticize philanthropy's mistakes and expect perfection from philanthropists when this is, when this is a burgeoning and new field. One of my pet peeves is when someone calls grant proposals antiquated. This was invented in the 70s. Nothing from the ant antique means over 100 years. <laughs> so this is not your math, math maths are wrong <laughs> when you call grant proposals antiquated. Yeah, not a perfect system. And there are, there are, way, there are people who are trying new approaches to try to make it like better, right? From the philanthropy side, and that's, that is the focus on this season. I do wanna ask, right? The, in general, I think of professional philanthropy work and professional fundraising work as two sides of the same coin. Uh, that coin is the administration of generosity. We have unprecedented levels of generosity around the planet, and it's creating an increasing amount of administrative work that needs to be done by both the fundraisers and the givers. On this giving side, right, folks like you are being hired to help with that administrative work, right, to uh, hopefully improve and make it a more efficient process. As far as I can tell, fundraisers need to be doing this too. Fundraising is a real skill, and a lot of these groups, the reason they're not, like I, from, I've read <laughs> nearly a thousand grant proposals in the last five years, and the number one reason they're not getting the grants is that the grant proposals aren't very good. They're not taking their fundraising very seriously. They know their work is good, and they think that's good enough. Several things you said in there, it needs to be connected to the personal life of the donor. They're not spending the time figuring out the psychology of all. They're just like, here's our work, here's what we need, give us money, right? You need to be more trusting. You need to give us more general operating grants. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, right? There are reasons why organized philanthropists behave the way that they do. The first RFP, arguably, is from 1906, and you can look it up. Her name was Olivia Slocum Sage. She, her husband, um, was Russell Sage, and he started Singer, the company that makes sewing machines. When he died, she inherited like $60 million. And this is in the early 1900s, this is an enormous amount of money, right? Still pretty big 
Still a pretty large amount of money. She wrote a letter in the New York Times. <laughs> I'm a wealthy widow. If you need money, send me. Here's my address. Right? Send me a letter. Right? You didn't have to be a 501c3. Anybody could send a letter. She got letters asking for shoes. My dad's sick. I want to send my kid to school. Right? I, you know, I, I lost my job. Everything. She did, obviously couldn't read them all. Um, Johns Hopkins did some sort of research project like 50 years later where they read them all to like do needs mapping. And that's when they actually got rid of it. Uh, what she did do was the following year, she started the Russell Sage Foundation, which still exists, has a very narrow focus on biochemistry research, it employs program officers, and has a very specific right, LOI and RFP process. And that's because she know, they know very well that if you just be like, we trust all, don't, all of the fundraisers, right? You, can't, you won't be able to read all of the requests. That's the fundamental problem with philanthropy. And that's why right, RFPs are very narrow. That's why there are invitation-only funders. Right? That's why the majority of grants became restricted. And I would say that's from organized philanthropists. Regular people donate. Most philanthropy is just regular folks giving a gift with very little process. Those are all unrestricted grants. So yes, great. so the grants are restricted. When you're going after a grant from a big organized thing, you need to be an organized thing yourself and present a specific thing for them to fund. But you, all, you need to have a complementary individual donor program for people to fund your general operations. That, and, and, and that means having fundraisers who are professionals, who improve their, like, who are, who are focused on their work, right, and trying to become better at their work. It's not like fundraising isn't a necessary evil in NGOs, it's just a necessary aspect of the work. It's the administration of all of this generosity that is supporting right, the, all of this free capital, doing all kinds of cool things around the world. Uh, you were, so folks at home don't know that you were nodding. <laughs> I was nodding a lot, yes. I was, I was just I the... <laughs> Sorry. You, generally, you agree with that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I, I was just wanting to pick up on is that, you know, this kind of role of the, the fundraiser and kind of, the, I, I think I wrote down the administration of generosity, because I do think there's, there's something in there that if you are, you know, an organized, what you call it, organized donor or an individual is that if you think about all the different needs and causes that are out there, like part of this is, is helping and trying to figure out where to give and what to give to. So I, I always think that the role of the fundraiser is a vital one of kind of presenting, like this is an opportunity for how you can give and this is how you can have that impact at, at scale. But I was also nodding on the fact of this increased scrutiny that I think philanthropy faces and this risk of failure and getting it wrong. I think there's that plays a lot into kind of these mm. these issues um, that we that we see. And, you know, sometimes I reflect that it's, it's kind of a little bit, the opposite to how it should be that people that give more tend to get more scrutiny than those that actually don't give at all or you know those that are more transparent in their giving <laughs> if you, so if you don't give it not giving at all is very interesting so like yes you yeah. can probably avoid scrutiny unless they like find out that you're not giving at all in which case yeah. you will increasingly like very very well people who don't give at all like that's okay. that would be a, that is that would be a, yeah and it's the only real way to like differentiate yourself in terms of relevance amongst the very, very wealthy, right? What are the causes that this very, very wealthy, like if you, we think about all, like start listing off super wealthy folks, right? Uh, and you'll, with each of them, you'll be like, well, they, you'll, you probably know what their general philanthropy is, right? Something that they've, probably something they've done recently, right? Um, right, we know that Gates has the foundation. We know that Musk, most people know that Musk 
gave internet to Ukraine or something, right? Or, or in general, he does a, he goes he doesn't just give without making a big announcement about it, right? Um, most people who give give without making a big announcement about it. Um, the, the, at the higher levels, right, it, relevance becomes a big part of what they're doing, so, so it tends to come with announcements. Uh, I gen when I talk to fundraisers, I'm like, if the funder has a marketing team, this changes your approach entirely, <laughs> right? It means that marketing is part of what they're doing. You need yeah. to be supporting their brand, right, with your program. Uh, an, an anonymous giver is only giving because they like the program. Right. They probably also like the, some of the brown nosing and relationships that come with it, right? But uh, there's probably no one who's like pure program-based intellectual donors. Everyone has heartstrings and right and, and values that it connects to. There is no one, Gates and Musk included, who have enough enough wealth to support every worthy cause. Um, exactly. This is something that's really important to understand as we criticize philanthropists, right? Like we say, oh, you should be trust-based, you should give general operating grants, you should accept, you should have an open proposal program, right? Ford has one and they get like 50,000 applications a year and I actually don't believe that they read them all. I actually, I tried to talk to a program officer there once <laughs> and I was like trying to, I'm like, how did you like tell me, like how long does it take to read them, how many people, right? And I'm trying to do the math to make it make sense to me and they just sort of don't want to talk about it. So we, we did actually an open call at the end of last year and we got... And it was quite a defined one. So I think the, the criteria were fairly clear. If you do an open call, you need to be, we don't fund we this, we don't be, fund that, we don't fund this, right? Exactly. You need to be very kind of, you know, say this is this is what we're looking for. We then translated it into seven languages because, you know, we fund in countries with different languages. We allowed applications. You read proposals in more than one language? So I can. We also had um, translators and reviewers from the countries who mm. could review in different um, languages, and we took the cost on ourselves to translate the proposals that for the team that couldn't. Um, and then we also did like I think three or four different webinars before the the time the proposals were closed, so that people could actually send in questions and ask and clarify. So, you know, of, we actually received eleven hundred or just over eleven hundred, and about ninety percent of them kind of qualified in the criteria. So we had to fund, you know, we had to, but it goes to the, you know, it, I think in the end, we're, we're, we're kind of getting to the point of making the final selection. Now we're probably funded around about 25. And so it's also the question of like, how, how do we, you know, what, what's the next step for next year, right? You know, is so what it we tool, you get 1100 applications Yeah. and first, you, uh, what I would call shortlist them, right? Make sure they like were a fit. And that's, yep. so then you've got, you down to about a thousand or so. And then from there, you're picking 25. So from there, we then pick 75, which were kind of our long list. So 925 people who were admittedly a fit, right? Like the box is checked. The box is checked. And it was a, it was a four page, very high level. What are you planning on? So that's, um, but that's not 925 declinations to people who, were, were eligible. It's a lot, right? So, well, we're eligible at the top level. I think because of the focus on systems change, it then went to different level, but fit, fit the box of that they were women-led, they were locally rooted in the country where we're looking, and they were addressing something in one of the very broad areas of education, health, or economic opportunity. So 925 organizations who fit that criteria spent time and didn't receive anything. Yeah. And which is why, this is the interesting question of where we're having that learning of, so for 2023, how do we go back 
and look through those organizations again and see, are there some that we need to engage with more, who we can actually refine that proposal of, you know, are there kind of things that are missing? So next year, I think it's unlikely we're going to do another open call, but we're kind of using this as like the start of particularly the gender fund. But as you know, it's, it's as you say, if only 2% are actually getting funding, like, What's the burden that we're asking of our potential funding partners? And so, yes, and this but, is very, those numbers are not like unusual. No, we, no. Did a, we had a co review partnership with Salt that was very similar numbers to yeah. that. Um, yeah. and, and again, and that's when you, it is, a, it, it's an interesting decision to me to do an open call that you like actually market, right? Mm. Like, where, like, any philanthropist who's like actively looking for new submissions, right? Again, the fundamental problem is too many submissions. So this is a very curious decision to make, right? Uh, and like there's usually, like there's, there, there, there's, you know, the, the solve at MIT, MIT is the world's leading institution for innovation. So they do want, they, that's the reason why they want to see, they need to go out of their way to find stuff from the last mile, right? So they can be MIT and continue. They need to be the number, they, they're, they're trying to be number one in the world. Yeah, yeah. And they've been number one for a long time. Um, and uh, it um, a bunch of other reasons why they do it too. It, it interests their alumni. It actually helps get. Uh, they've seen an increase in applications to the school as well because the program students want to apply to places that are doing cool stuff like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, yeah, again, so we, I've had many chances to talk to, to folks who are starting new programs like this. Uh, and you know, eleven hundred seems to be eleven to fifteen hundred is how many you can expect, even with a like very narrowly defined. Mm -hmm. uh, global challenge like that, and that's very that's it, in order to give people in order to give a thoughtful review to all of that, a tremendous amount of administration. Right? Exactly, a lot of team time, but it's also I think it raises the, the question of like the for us it was about equity of access. If we're launching, you know, we launched this year a new gender fund. How do we ensure? And it was particularly focused on locally rooted organizations, so organizations that are really kind of let's say based in Ghana, Senegal, South Africa, Brazil. How do we ensure that they can find out about us, right? So it's through our networks, but we didn't want to fund some of the, you know, the the others that would potentially already be in our network, right? So how do we get the word out that this funding is available in a way that's, that gives that equity of access? And so the, the question now is, having done this, how do we then move forward, acknowledging entirely the burden that this this can actually, you know, we try to keep this as light as possible, make it very clear as to what we're looking for, but as you say, the burden is still there. So how do we take this now a step forward to say, what's next? What do we do potentially with the, as you say, the 900? Just to <laughs> be, so to, um, to devil's advocate for a moment, yeah. right? Uh, your, your, let's go, I like to, we could go backwards from the end result of your program, right? Mm -hmm. This is 25 grants to 25 organizations, right? Mm -hmm. And presumably all thousand of these folks all have websites and publicly available information that someone could find without actually contacting them or asking them to submit something. If you're running a nonprofit, you should, you should have a website. I trust me, I advise nonprofits all the time. If they don't have a website, it's one of the first things I'm gonna say. If a donor can't look you up, you're probably not going to get random gifts out of nowhere, right? Uh, almost all donors take a look at the website before making a gift. I've seen the numbers on that. It's in the high 90%, right? You have a staff who's doing a lot of administrative work to source through all these applications. In that amount of time, could you not do your own research and identify 25 worthy projects and then fund those? 
And I think this is what we're thinking about for, for the next time. I think... You're concerned the, with the equity of access there. Yeah, because how do we... How do we source? So part of it is referrals, right? How do we know where to go and look, right? So we have teams in the countries, which is which is great. But for example, within um, Africa, we have a, a lot of our team in Kenya. So how are we going to make sure that we're in Cote d'Ivoire, that we're really looking at all the different organizations that are interested also in the type of funding and type of focus that we that we have? So as I said, it's about it's about this kind of link between what is the almost like the service delivery of a, of a local organization, but how do you then embed that within a, within a government system? You know, is the organization interested in doing that? Like not all organizations are, right? Is that something that they're already looking at doing or something that they're, they've started considering? Because many times what we find is that a, you know, an organization may have started thinking about that, but it's actually not on their website yet. It's something they've had discussions about as what would we do if we had, you know, if we wanted to kind of really scale this program to the level of a region, how would we work with a, with the government? And so in terms of then the funding that we actually offer, our funding for the larger grants comes with like almost like a year zero, like six to nine months design grant, you know, to look at like what, what would this, what would this look like in terms of a strategic plan for the for the organization for the next five years? How can other funders come in and fund this? What's the kind of coherence around what the organization is looking to do? So it's less a, let's fund my project or this very specific mm-hmm. thing. It's more like a broader, and I think some organizations are at the stage where they want to receive that and others aren't. And so again, having some self-selection into it, I think is also helpful, the equity of access. But I think, you know, it's, it's a really valid, I think with all whether whatever process you go through, there are going to be some kind of pros and cons. And I think for this one, it made sense that we did it for the, for the start. So that the, you know, the fact that this funding is available is made, you know, it's made away. It gives us this almost very long, almost like database of people that are interested in working with us and receiving our type of funding. And then it allows us to kind of move from there to, to see what, what more needs to be done. Yes. That's very interesting. So you, so it's not, so you get, you're giving these 25 grants. And as opposed to a program that like did the research and identified 20, which many, there are many funding groups that that's how they operate, right? Yeah. Like, so for instance, Mackenzie Scott has a team. There's no proposal process or anything. You just get a call one day. Actually, one of the folks, so, so yeah, somebody that I- There's I, a proposal. <laughs> uh, some of the folks just get a call one day. I, I've, yeah. We, yeah. We, uh, I think sometimes they ask for information, right? Because there's, there's giving, I would love to interview one of their giving advisors. I imagine I, eventually I'll probably be able to get one of them. There's a guy named Dan or something. Uh, but um, there's many other, there's a, lots of you, lots of you folks doing this work these days, right? Um, it's very interesting to me that the, the, the decision-making process between like, right, are we going to identify our own folks and like, are we going to have a huge open process? We should mention that there's like many steps in, the, in between that too, right? You could, instead of inviting literally everybody in the world, you do some research and you invite a hun- the hundred that you think are most likely. Right, and get some yeah. extra information from them. Yeah. Right, and then then you're all, then it's only 75 folks. And I, what I also like is increasingly, this is something Dr. Dr. Solomon taught us about giving was that when you do, like when you're doing declinations, like you really want clean break, no, like nothing. Right, when you when you say no to them, don't say no in a way that they could argue with. So you don't give them any specific feedback. If I say we rejected you because we were, your program is not sustainable, we're looking for sustainable programs, what's the, what are they going to say? We can make it sustainable. We are sustainable, but we are sustainable, and here's why, right? 
Yeah. Um, they need the money. They're not going to be like, oh yes, we under we respect your process and we, right? Yeah. They, they, uh, and so, right, doing those declinations is very difficult, and for a long time, the best practice was just not to work with them. Increasing there are groups that are like trying to to keep track of the folks they've turned down, right? Like Solve does list all kinds of people that don't actually win there. Uh, the MacArthur Hundred and Change program that was that gave one hundred million dollar grant, uh, published all the applications, right, and ended up raising more than a hundred million for some of their runners up. Um, and that, that, that's, that, that that's very interesting, in, increased amounts of giving. Also for folks who cannot afford professional services in their giving, these resources can be very useful, right? Go to the MacArthur Foundation and you can look at all, you want, you don't have to go out and have people send you proposals for $100 million. There are people who could give away $100 million, but maybe they don't want to start a foundation or hire a whole bunch of people or whatever. They can just go to MacArthur, type in, I like the oceans and I like Fiji, and it'll be like three programs working there in Fiji and they can support those, right? So that, that stuff is all very interesting. Um, and I personally think this is the most exciting time in philanthropy since 1906 when they were first, right? Dreaming up RFPs and um, all kinds of things. Uh, for those interested in philanthropy history, there's a great, um, there's a couple of books I've mentioned on the show. I've got them over there in the, in the pile over here. Uh, and um, we're going to have links to them on the podcast. In the beginning, it, the language was very, very... Um, they used words we don't use today. In particular, fundraisers were called supplicants. That's an interesting word. Yes, the original word, they were supplicants. The word supplicant appears, like, all, if you look at the, like, original documents, like at Carnegie and stuff, that's all there. They weren't grantees or funders or is supplicants asking for money, right? And eventually that became right unpopular. I should say this is a trend, right? They were fundraising offices in the 50s and 60s. Then they became development offices, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? And, and increasingly now they're called advancement offices, right? And probably it'll be called something else in the future. Because once people figure out what that office does, time to change the name. <laughs> a fundraising office seems pretty obvious what that guy's calling you about, right? Um, okay, so there, uh, we, I had many questions on the list. We've sort of like um, uh, touched on many of them. Uh, we've sort of talked about your process a little bit. Uh, and uh, I think for the, for the folks at home, they've, we've um, um, allowed them a glimpse into the world of giving advising. It's a fancy world with Swiss bankers and uh, restricted grants, right? Very complicated, lots of words. Right? We don't use supplicant anymore, but there are new words <laughs> all the time popping up. Uh, lots of the folks on my committee uh, who are submitting proposals that listen to this are thinking about their careers, might want a career in philanthropy. Uh, do they all, do they, all need, they need to go to Oxford and then work at Credit Suisse first? Is that the, is that the path? What's the, what's the, what do you think is the best possible path for future giving advisors to take? Oof. Um... You know, I personally believe you can come from, from any path, but I do think like that that understanding of both the reality of what the you know, what the grantee organization is facing, I think that's in that's important, right? You know, to so if you're trying to advise a, a a donor on being the best kind of donor that's possible, then I think having kind of understanding of 
what the what the grantee organization is potentially going through and you know understanding what could be most effective but also then understanding what what is the, the perspective of the donor and being able to bridge those two worlds i think is i think is really important but you know a lot of this is about that and you know when you have that i think that brings you credibility so that you can come into that conversation and then it's about being able to build trust right you know i think some of the best advisors are are able to nudge and cajole and you know, try and encourage giving in a way that's that's more more effective. But you know, that being able to listen, ask questions, and really kind of understand like these both sides, I think is important. Because in the end, you know, uh, you have organisations. Yeah, you know, as you say, what, what would you say this about? You know, there's there's administration. There's kind of trying to meet a need. There's you know, this generosity. Like I think it's how how do you ensure that this create these kind of partnerships and you know I do think it is a partnership right you know somebody has funding and somebody else has expertise right to be able to turn that funding into some level of impact so being able to kind of bridge those two and I think from that the paths can be can be different Hmm. but I think being able to to do that is kind of pretty pretty crucial you need to be able to speak both languages in a way that's right so I generally agree and, and I come from the perspective, I talk to a lot of um, fledgling fundraisers who are right, struggling to bring the grants in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spend all my time trying to think about, like, why are they not getting in, right? And for some of them, like what you just said, they're not interested in. They do need funding for their program, right? But they are passionate founders of their program, and they know what they're doing. They don't necessarily want the person who gave them that money to, like, be involved. And I'll say, sometimes... The philanthropist's ideas are what I would call, like they're generally good ideas, but they're usually something that the founder has already considered and dismissed. Mm. Like five, like it happens to me all the time. Stuff I thought about and considered and I know very well won't work because I'm the one who does this day to day, right? He's getting suggested to me all the time, constantly, right? And my work, it's one of the most frustrating things about my work. And sometimes actually in the report discussions, one of my questions I like to ask is like, what's the dumbest question people regularly ask you? Right, and it's it, it's not necessarily dumb. They're not. They're just learning about your work, right? So they're asking yep. rudimentary beginning questions, right? Uh, so so you're right. These these folks have expertise, right? So how is that expert supposed to create some sort of like high level relationship with someone who doesn't necessarily have that expertise? It's just providing funds, and if they, especially if they're saying we want to be partners, right? I don't want to be partners with someone who doesn't understand my issue. Thank you for the money, but. Right? Then you, you force these fundraisers to do this weird dance where they pretend you know what you're talking about. Right? Um, the, the, I think ideally, the organizations that tend to succeed are the ones that do understand this, that are good at, 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 at maintaining these relationships and making folks feel like dedicated partners. But there is a certain type of founder who is like a little bit more introverted, less uh, gregarious, I suppose, right? And isn't interested in like talking to the donors is much more interested in the work and is generally like frustrated by the issue and the fact that it's not being solved fast enough. So sometimes they're quite, it's, like, it's quite unpleasant to talk to them about the issue because it's, you know, it's a problem, right? They might be burnt out, they're unfunded, right? Like expecting them to be these like exceptional cocktail party guests is, is often unrealistic. And so it, it seems to me that you've set up a note, like the, one of the advantages to your, for your donors, right? is they get to have a professional like yourself who can understand some of those concerns, right? You can have a conversation with the 
applicants and hear their frustrations and translate that into right Swiss or French or, Spanish. or whatever, whatever the various languages you speak are. How, how many languages do you speak? Three and a half. Three and a half. So what is, is that French, English, half Spanish? French, English, Spanish, and half German. Half German. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, very good. Much better than my one and a half. <laughs> but I, you know, I think it's a, I think in the end, again, we're, we're all humans, right? So I certainly, and this is where, you know, in terms of like the organizations we work with and you know, the grantees on, on the ground, it's often our, our advice to them is, you know, you know your program and, you know, don't, don't change your program to fit what we're asking for. Like we want to understand what you're planning to do why you're planning to do it and then you know hopefully we can find a way and, and, and model there and we also kind of mirror you know model that to our to our donor partners to say you know we want to understand what you're looking for we want to engage with you understand what you're interested in but you know it's also we need to find that, that right that right fit like if you're keen to kind of come and sit six months with a you know one of our programs that's working in Cote d'Ivoire for example you know, I'm sorry if you don't have the skill set or your family doesn't have the skill set, it's not going to be helpful for the impact. So you have to have, but be able to have that very honest conversation. Mm-hmm. It's based on trust. It's based on relationship. And I think what we try and, and, and say is that like, we need to respect the deep contextual knowledge of partners on the ground. But then we also need to make sure that we're, we're providing enough information and updates so that you know donors can feel comfortable that the, the funding is going to where it's needed and that things that are, you know, um, things are, are progressing. But also, you know, if you're looking at change at scale, like this is not something that you're going to see in a year, right? We can see things that are happening, but this is, these are long-term things. You know, we're supporting organizations that are working on super complex issues. And so how to have that, to kind of keep that dialogue, share out updates. Many times it's more of a dialogue just to be aware of actually what is actually happening on the ground and then thinking mm. through well where are there moments where we can come together and share these learnings or where are there moments where you know we may have a more sophisticated um, I would say sophisticated, but you know a partner mm. that's more willing to engage with donors and then say well how can we kind of share um share there and and others who if you want to focus more on the work then that's kind of our role to ensure that we're kind of sharing back what's actually happening and understanding what the different Sophisticated is one of my least, well. least favorite regular. I know, that's words. why I took, I took that word back. Very yeah, no, I appreciate that you did that. We actually <laughs> did, we once did, a, we once did a whole panel where we, we compared like sophisticated, high quality, Ugh. savvy, like all those words that people use to like talk about like why they chose to fund who they fund, right? Um, I mean, there's, I, in general, I would say I like to use grant ready. Right, because this is very specific. Like they are ready to receive that grant from that specific donor, and they can fit the, into the boxes and everything. Yeah, it do, that doesn't really speak to sophistication or savvy or anything else. It's just it's their specific ability to pursue and achieve grants. Yeah, right? which is a, which is like a, you could make a little list of what organizations have to have in, in order to be able to be grant ready. Exactly. Um, exactly. And we I are we, we're, we're yeah, coming up near exactly. the end. My I've learned that my audience rarely makes it past the 100 minute mark. So I do want to wrap up around there. Uh, I have two more questions for you. When it comes to philanthropy, what are you most excited about? Okay, first, so most excited. I actually think this, 
more of this trend to spend down and mm. give larger, more unrestricted. Like, I think it's starting. It's still not the norm, but I think it's gathering more momentum. And I think that yes. it's... That's that's something that I'm pretty excited to see how that continues. It was not like it wasn't just rare in the field. It was considered incorrect, <laughs> right? Like don't spend the principal. With yeah. my like my grandmother, that's her like main piece of advice, <laughs> right? Which is I think increasingly silly advice as the principals grow and grow and grow to enormous sizes. Exactly. For a lot of people, it's pretty, it's pretty solid advice. If you've got like a, a, a right a, a modest principle perhaps you should perhaps you should not touch it right but for the folk for folks with a billion dollars or more that's kind of silly yeah and that that that, that might in fact be antiquated um yeah. the yeah no and i i agree i am i'm excited about that as well uh and i think donors should be excited about it as well fundamentally it is like I, I think one of the things that i like to that my father came up with actually he's a historian uh when he i asked him to try to like to look at the history of philanthropy and like come up with a definition for like, how is it different from investment, right? And he, he, he calls it freed money. There's the wheel of capitalism, right? And inside the wheel, you can do all kinds of stuff. Transaction, buy things, sell things, invest in things, see returns. Enorm we've, we've accomplished so much inside the wheel of capitalism. I really try to make it very clear that this is not me criticizing capitalism. It's just, I'm just acknowledging that it can't do literally everything. And I actually don't think there's anyone, even the most diehard capitalists, they don't believe that either. And I know that for a fact because they engage in philanthropy, right? Usually after they have exploited capitalism for their own, for their own benefit, then that's when they go and they engage in philanthropy, right? Philanthropy is it's, it's, it's freedom in a way that like other people aren't able to, like a lot of people aren't able to acquire, right? You can give money without having, like in your capitalist career, you can't just give money to things without making money. That's, you're a slave to capitalism. The, the opportunity to be freed from that should be something that's very exciting for people. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to always pay the bar tab because I hated the arguing over who, right, like who got what and who needs to pay that. Like, I, that's my least favorite conversation, splitting the check. It is worth it to me to just pay for it and to, to, to free myself from that conversation. That's a capitalist conversation that I would much rather just not have. I want to go have a nice time with my friends, right, have have some drinks, have some food. I, the, the, the capitalist part is enslaving to me. I feel free from being able to do that. I feel like philanthropists are spending down, like really getting serious about their excess wealth in like large amount. That should be very freeing uh, experience. They, they, it's very, very exciting to me as well. Uh, all right, so uh, I, we do, we have a, a, a dedicated audience. I've seen from my analytics a very large number uh, of our listeners do make it all the way to the end of our episodes. We have a little bit of drop off, but I assume those folks, like, not very serious anyway. For the people who have made it all the way to the end, uh, is there anything in particular? And if they've been interested in what they, I assume we can assume, because they've made it all the way to the end, they've interested in what you had to say and everything. They, have you, do you have a book or a website or anything out there that they should go look out? They want to find out more about Co Impact? Yeah, no, we do. And absolutely, you know. Kind of leaning into this capitalism power all of that um definitely go to www.co-impact.org um, on their website we have a handbook which kind of lays out a lot more about our approach and also kind of a, a little bit more about our philosophy about how to shift 
how to shift power, how to kind of listen and, you know, support those that are contextually closer to the issues. Um, and really kind of how, how we're looking to kind of build partnerships and alliances with, with others. So would be great to check that check that out. Uh, terrific. So that's co-impact.org. And the uh, dash is also sometimes called a hyphen? Often called a hyphen, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, I don't know if we're talking American English or British English now. I think around the world it, it varies. <laughs> hyphen, dash, or whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, terrific to talk to you. Uh, thank you for coming in uh, and uh, explaining all your great work that you're doing. I'm sure the folks at home uh, found it very interesting. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we have many more Giving Advisors coming in over the next year. Uh, we're going to ask them mostly the same questions. And hopefully we're going to learn a lot uh, about the field of philanthropic consulting, giving advising, co-impacting, whatever we want to. What would you, I'll ask one more final question. If someone said, like, what do you call your profession? Like, what do you, what would you say it is? Oof. Um, it's like with a doctor, it's very, I'm a doctor, right? Yeah, yeah. Or a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. Uh, Their actual, the doctor might be like an encephalologist or something, right? And his work's very narrow and everything, but he can. Maybe I would, no, you're going to hate me for this choice of words. <laughs> maybe I'd be a philanthropy influencer. Like, not influencer in the bad way of, like, or, like, but, you know, like, influencing more philanthropy to fund effectively somehow. You prefer an influencer to an advisor? Yeah. I like the word influence. I, I hate what Instagram has done to it. Uh, yeah. they, in general, I am an influential person. Um, I don't have a huge Instagram following. Uh, but if I tell somebody they should donate to a nonprofit, they take it pretty seriously because of what I do and who I am. Yeah. I can, in fact, have that kind of influence, and I've intended to do that. Um, one of the ways, one of the best definitions of the word power I ever heard was the ability to influence others. Yeah. Right? I do. I want to be powerful. Uh, right? Not for not for evil ends. <laughs> right? But like, there's there's change I want to see in the world, and I want to be able to influence others to make that change. Uh, and so, right? That's I think that's. Uh, for people who are looking in to get into influence, right, don't focus on your Instagram account, right? Go to Oxford, get in the PPE program, get your credit suite. <laughs> There's lots of other things you can do. Uh, I, I myself got a theater degree, and I engaged on a volunteer basis with a number of giving circles and other things like that for a very long time uh, until, right, I was able to start my own nonprofit, get my own grants, and I'm able, I'm able to do this work now. There's lots I did not ever work at a New York bank or a Swiss bank. Uh, I've, been, I've been asked by those places to come and speak to their like next-gen clients on occasion. Um, but like, there's lots of different ways to get into this work for those, for those folks who are listening at home. And we're going to be interviewing uh, a lot of different kinds of people this season. Uh, thank you again, Anna-Marie, uh, for coming in. Thank you, Dave. Um, I hope you enjoy I think it's perhaps mid to late afternoon for you. 10 past 5. 10 past 5. All right, tea time. <laughs> is that correct? It's yeah. happy hour here. It was, it was kind of uh, but and I, uh, I have uh, full afternoon work ahead of me, um, running the nonprofit and everything. I imagine, right? Uh, you've probably got um, an evening of doing European things, and uh, I um, will let you know once the episode is up. Thank you again for coming in. Uh, why don't you say goodbye to everybody? Yeah.
thanks thanks for listening it's been a pleasure also kind of sharing here so um yeah goodbye thank you all right thank you very much thank you david jaffe thank you everybody listening and thank you to all the proposal authors around the world uh please send your proposals to unfunded list uh, so that we can review them thanks very much thank you Anne marie uh have a good afternoon